Good evening. Uh, my name is Ben, and I'm part of the church family here. We're going to be reading a couple of passages from the end of Revelation, uh, starting with uh, chapter 18, verse 21. That is on page 1,247. Revelation 18, starting at verse 21. The finality of Babylon's doom. Then a mighty, a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, With such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, pipers and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No worker of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of the bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's important people. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of prophets and of God's holy people, of all who have been slaughtered on the earth. And now moving two pages over to verse, uh, sorry, chapter 22, we're going to be reading verses 1 to 5. Revelation 22, 1 to 5. Eden restored. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down to the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Thanks, Ben. My name's Chris Webb. Uh, delighted to uh, take part in this series, uh, The City. Um, I think that we, as a church building, we have a unique um, location here, right at the heart of the city. There was a time a few years ago where Above Bar Church was thinking of selling this building. Um, it's not easy to run youth work. It's not easy when there's no car parking. And Above Bar Church was thinking, let's sell this and let's move uh, somewhere else where it's easy to, to bring a car, uh, where there'll be more space to run things. But I think in recent years, um, the church has really embraced its role right here in the heart of the city. And so Above Bar has a unique opportunity here. It's unique really among the churches in Southampton, um, but also unique uh, among the churches of the UK. See, Tim, am I on? Great, wired up. Thank you. Well, our aim in doing this 
series, just morning and evening for three weeks, so next week will be the last one, is to try and understand the um, strategic and theological importance of cities. And for all of us here uh, tonight and in the other services to, to bolster our sense of calling and commitment to this city of Southampton. How many people were born here in Southampton? Just a few, a handful of people. I would love to do a pigeonhole and ask you, what's the most beautiful city in the world? Um, but I'm sure that you'd all say Swansea. Um, in, in, our, in our readings, uh, we, we actually read about the city judged and the city glorified. The, the closing chapters of Revelation are a tale of two cities, which is the title of a novel by uh, Charles Dickens. And Charles Dickens' book begins like this. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope and the winter of despair. That kind of sums up our theme for this evening, which is the tension of the city. See, the biblical view of the city is neither romantic nor hostile. It's nuanced. The city is really humanity intensified. It's as if you put a, a magnifying glass over the human race, and there it is encapsulated in the city. The city is both a place of violence and crime and sin, but also refuge and peace and creativity and diversity and productivity. So in the early chapters of the Bible, we have the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. We have Babel representing anti-God rebellion. At the end of the Bible, we have Rome, which is depicted in the Revelation as a beast on seven hills. Rome sits on seven hills. But we also have Jerusalem described as the joy of the whole earth. We have cities of refuge. And so the, the Bible view is nuanced. We're going to divide our time into two this evening. We're going to look at the city defined and then the city redeemed. So first of all, the city defined. What is a city? Often a city is defined by uh, its population size. How big is the city? What's the biggest city in the world? Is it Mexico City? I, I should have done my research, I don't know. But in, in the UK, a city must have a cathedral. The Hebrew word for city is ir, and it literally means a settlement surrounded by a wall. And so in the Bible, a city is defined by not the population size, but the population density. As it says there in Psalm 122, verse 3, Jerusalem built as a city should be, closely compacted together. So because the city is defined in this way as a a, 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 in population density, people compacted together, there are really four features of cities throughout the Hebrew scriptures. The first feature of a city is stability and safety. Because a city had walls, 
It meant greater stability inside than outside. Despite um, Hitler's best efforts, we still have a lot of the remains of the medieval wall here in Southampton. But it was much better to be inside the wall than outside. Outside, you were subject, perhaps, to invading armies, uh, wild animals, blood avengers. Inside, there was law and order. There were, there were courts and stability. The word civilized literally means cityfied. And the Bible uses the word city as a metaphor for um, confidence. So in Proverbs 25, 28, we read this. A man without self-control is like a city without a wall. That is, he's out of control. But uh, cities were places not out of control, but places where there was order. Another way in which cities thrive and where there is safety and stability is for minority groups to flee from evil powers. We see that in the scriptures and we see it today in Southampton, even in this church. In the Bible also, uh, accused criminals could flee someone who might avenge them and go to a city of refuge. Moses instructed these cities of refuge so that someone who uh, was being chased by an avenger could go and his case would be heard in a court of law by the elders of the city. And today, uh, cities can thrive because minorities feel less conspicuous in a city. They can blend in better than they can in a small town or in a village. And of course, the final vision of the new Jerusalem, right at the end of Revelation, is of a city where the nations gather and blend in beautifully. It's described there as the glory of the nations comes in. The food, the culture of the nations blends in. And the world that we all yearn for and want becomes a reality. Second definition or aspect of a city is diversity. If we go into the New Testament, it's very interesting that the church in Acts, in, uh, in uh, Antioch, in chapter 13 of Acts, had a leadership where the leaders came from all different ethnic groups. This was one of the first missionary churches. It was a very international church, and that was reflected in the leadership. And perhaps we need to work harder at Above Bar Church also in terms of the leadership reflecting the diversity of the city and the church. Tim Keller says that a human society needs um, several elements. It needs an economic order. That's where business happens and people work. It needs a cultural order where people pursue scholarship, universities, there's art, there's theater. And it needs a cultural order where there are courts of law, where there's government, where officials meet. Now, if you think of all those elements, the economic, the cultural, the political, the residential as well, as components of a pizza. So in a pizza, you might have the dough, the tomato sauce, the cheese, the ham and pineapple, or the pepperoni or whatever. The city is the place where, where each neighborhood is like a slice of pizza. So you go into a neighborhood, and in a city, there are 
residences. There are also places to work. There are also theaters and art and worship. And it has public buildings and council offices and town halls and courts, often within walking distance. This is the people closely compacted together, all mixed together. And in that sense, also, the city is diverse. That's very different from a suburb where the place where you live and the place where you work might be quite a long way away. The third element of a biblical city is its creativity and its productivity. Take that slide down a minute. Who can tell me, who can tell me, who built the first city in the Bible? Cain, yeah. I bet you wouldn't have known that if you hadn't seen the slide. Cain was the murderer of his brother, Abel. Uh, and yet Cain went and built the first city, and we're told about this in Genesis chapter 4. So in the very first chapters of the Bible, we're then told about a musician called Jubal in verse 21 of chapter 4. And then we're told about another fellow called Tubal Cain, who made tools. And so in the very first few chapters of the Bible, we have the beginning of the arts and technology and agriculture, and they all begin where cities begin. So we have productivity and creativity. Unfortunately, the fourth element of cities is crime and debauchery. In the early chapters of Genesis, we also see an emerging culture of death. In Genesis chapter 4, we actually have the first gangster rap. And this is from a man called Lamech, a descendant of Cain, who boasts to his two wives, Ada and Zillah, that he's just killed a man. And you read the verses and it sounds like a gangster rap. And for the rest of the book of Genesis, the city is seen in quite a negative light. In chapter 11, people come together to build this city called Babel. It's a city that stands for human beings' independence from God. A city that stands for human beings' pride and self-glorification rather than the glory of God. And self-salvation. And God comes down and actually scatters the people from that city. But from that point on in the Bible, Babel and Babylon become a sort of code word for an urban culture that's in opposition to God. Cities become violent and centers of tribalism and exploitation and crime and debauchery as we see in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now when we moved uh, to Southampton from Chiang Mai, the Webb family, we had the biggest culture shock of our lives. We were prepared for a culture shock going to Chiang Mai, but we weren't prepared for the culture shock coming back. And one of the big elements of our culture shock was having to use keys all the time. I seemed to spend so much time locking things and unlocking things. It took me ages to get used to that. I never used a key once in five years in Chiang Mai. Never locked the house, never locked my bike. I was uh, saying this morning that people who went to a food court in Chiang Mai would reserve their table with their mobile phone, go and get their food, and then come back. Imagine doing that here in Southampton. No phone left, I'm sure. That's probably why we've had 
five break-ins in our house and five bikes stolen. In fact, last week, the, the fellow that burgled our house, uh, the police phoned us and told us that he'd been arrested in his mother's house in Glasgow. We had CCTV footage of him, which we could give to the police, and he, he comes to court in Southampton in a couple of weeks. We did a bit of research, and in 2013, he had received convictions for 93 offenses. These are just the ones that were reported. So there's plenty of crime here in Southampton. In fact, yesterday, two drug dealers were arrested in the alley just outside our house, much to the excitement of our kids. Actually, Callum is here this evening. Last time we went on a prayer walk around uh, Harefield, we witnessed um, an aggressive man, a violent crime, and we needed to report that to the police, and he was sent down for a few years. You can tell I'm a village boy, really. I grew up in a village called Carmarthen in South Wales, where everyone knows everyone else. But I've been called to the city of Southampton, and this is the city defined, a place where people are closely compacted together like a pizza, with stability, with diversity, with creativity, with productivity, but also uh, with the crime and debauchery. But what we see in the Bible is it comes to its climax, the very end, in the book of Revelation, is the city redeemed. In fact, there are hints of this all through the New Testament when Paul writes to the churches. He says that the Christians are citizens of a new Jerusalem. He says our, our citizenship is there, and uh, Peter also, he says that therefore, <clears throat> wherever we live, we're actually aliens and strangers right now because our citizenship is in glory. Now, knowing this, the early Christians went to cities. If you read the book of Acts, which is perhaps the most exciting book in the Bible, nearly all the action occurs in the famous big cities of the Greco-Roman world. The mission strategy of the early church was to go to the city. And because, because cities are like pizzas, people would uh, every sector of society was reached in the city. So in Acts 17, Paul goes to Athens, which was the intellectual capital of the Roman world, and he gets an opportunity to speak at Mars Hill to all the intellectuals. He then goes in chapter 18 to Corinth, which was really the commercial center of the empire. And then he goes in the next chapter, 19, to Ephesus, which was arguably the religious capital of the Roman world. And then ultimately, at the end of the book of Acts, he gets to Rome, which was the center of military and political power in the known world at that time. And by reaching the city, Paul was reaching every segment of society. The early church was an urban movement that won the peoples of the empire to Christ. But it's in Revelation that we see the redemption of the city. But before that, we have described the judgment of God's old enemy, Babylon, and its overthrow. And we read just a snippet of that in those strange verses in Revelation 18. You might want to flick there just to skim it uh, in verses 21 to 24 of Revelation 18, which we read earlier, the finality of Babylon's doom. 
We see in the book of Revelation that we're not to take this book literally. It's a work of art. It integrates pictures from the whole of the Hebrew scriptures with pictures from the first century political world. And John, in his vision, sees the judgment of all godless culture throughout the ages. Babylon represents this. It represents anti-God, rebellious culture throughout history. And we see in these verses here that uh, in verses 22 and 23, the music of harpists and musicians and pipers and trumpeters will never be heard again. No worker of any trade will be found in you again. The sound of millstone will never be heard in you again. Uh, and then in verse 23, the voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's most important people. And so in this city are good things, music and trade and industry and marriage, but all those things have been infected with Babylon. And then in verse 24, there is persecution for the people of God. Verse 24, in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all who have been killed on the earth. And we have many people at Above Bar Church uh, who have recently had to flee religious persecution of this kind. They've had to flee because they would end up tortured or imprisoned or even killed because of their beliefs. And the scriptures speak to us here that there will be judgment on those that have brought about that humiliation and that persecution. We uh, went to watch that film, Till, recently. Has anyone seen that film about Emmett Till, who was a, uh, a, a black boy who grew up in Boston but went to visit his cousins in Mississippi, and he was lynched for wolf whistling. And in that racist place with a racist police and racist courts in a racist state, uh, the perpetrators, even though they admitted that they did it, they were acquitted, and justice wasn't brought. Uh, but ultimately, justice will be brought, and this is why even the fall of Babylon is good news, because the Bible says that justice will roll like rivers and righteousness like a never-ending stream. Babylon is depicted as a whore, as a prostitute that seduces that seduces the good things of this world into a, a, a humanistic, anti-God posture that also results in persecution. But the prostitute is replaced by the bride. And in uh, Revelation 21 to 22, we read that the world that we all want is coming. That human beings who are malfunctioning and living under a curse right now will flourish again. Because the gods of money and sex and power and intellectual humanism and persecuting false religion are judged, the curse is removed. And heaven comes down in the form of a garden city. It's the same garden that Adam and Eve walked in, but it's expanded into a garden city. Let's have a look again at the, the, the verses that were read to us earlier in chapter 22 of Revelation. 
the angel showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. It's an extraordinary work of literature, this revelation. You know, it has seven acts and seven scenes in every act. And it's a book of sevens. There are seven churches and seven trumpets and seven bowls of wrath. And it's seven, 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 seven. There are 50 scenes altogether. And it ends with, with this scene that we read here. The Garden of Eden. It's like a cultivated park that you might find in a royal palace. The water of life flows down the middle of the great street. And in each side of the river stood the tree of life. Where did we last see the tree of life? In Genesis, chapters 1 and 2. And the leaves of the tree are for, for the healing of all the nations. It's as if the healing of Jesus, the Lamb, extends out to the nations. See, God had called Adam and Eve to expand the borders of their garden. That's called by theologians the cultural mandate. Go and flourish, says God. Go and multiply and flourish. But we read in Genesis and then throughout the Hebrew Scriptures that Adam and Eve's descendants built cities with creativity and diversity and so on, but also with sin and crime and debauchery. But here God's will is finally done. Jesus, the man, fulfills the cultural mandate on our behalf by sucking out the curse. The, the book of Revelation is full of metaphor, and one of the metaphors is the Lamb. The throne of the Lamb is at the center of the city. In other places in Revelation, we read about the Lamb who was slain. And this reminds us that to purchase our redemption, he was cut off. So that human beings can flourish again, he absorbed the curse as the innocent Lamb on that cross dying for the sins of the world. And so the curse was laid on him, not us. And so the city has a checkered past, but it now has a beautiful future. So where I want to land this tonight is really to talk about the strategic importance, not only of cities, but of your vocations and your gifts, which is why it's good to do the network course if you have a chance but everything that we do to renew this city through works of justice and through beauty and through our very vocations will continue mysteriously for all eternity. Because the New Jerusalem doesn't start from scratch. It's a glorification of what's already taking place here. A gardener cultivates a garden, but every vocation in some way is a response to and an extension of that gardening. So your job as an OT is cultivating and is an extension of that original mandate. Your job in technology, your job as a teacher, your job as a carer, your job as a designer, as an architect, your musical gifts are important and will be used and carry on into eternity. 
this morning I pointed to someone and said, your job is a policewoman. And then I thought, no, actually. Maybe as a policewoman, that job won't continue. I don't know. Maybe the gifts accrued and the, the training and so on will uh, last into eternity. We have a quote here from uh, N.T. Wright, who has written this book called The, the Resurrection and the People of God, which is, which is all about the importance of the resurrection and what this means for us now as resurrection people. And I want to read some of it, and I want you to reflect on it as we close. It's very dense, but maybe a sentence or two from here will stand out to you. It, it, it could be something you discuss with others afterwards, but let me read and then we'll close. N.T. Wright says this, If we believe in the end that God will put all things right, will do justice in that positive, creative, healing, restorative sense, and if we believe that when God raised Jesus from the dead, he did exactly that, close up and personal, in one human being, who represented and stood for everyone else, then we cannot in, hold back from the imperative to do justice in this full sense at every opportunity in our world. In the power of the Spirit, we must name and shame injustices that are still rampant and work for their abolition. And we must take care that in our personal lives, and particularly in the lives of our churches, injustice is rooted out as far and wide as can be done. And only if we're doing this will it make sense to preach and teach about God's new creation, about the way in which Jesus' resurrection resonates out into the renewal, the putting right of creation. And it's the same with beauty. If we believe that God made a beautiful world which has been spoiled in so many ways, but still resonates with his love and power. And if we believe that in Jesus, God has done the most beautiful thing imaginable, why else would so many artists and musicians devote their best efforts to setting it forth for our awe and contemplation? Then we must make sure that as far as we are able, in our churches, in our personal lives, and in the wider communities where we have influence, we're working to foster and celebrate art, music, dance, drama, poetry, sculpture, whatever else we can. He carries on that justice and beauty point the way. Our calling as resurrection people, looking back to Jesus and under his guidance and commission, is to bring true signs of renewal into his creation day by day. We do this alongside preaching the gospel, of course, that Jesus is the only way to be saved. But that's, that's, not, that's not simply the gospel. The gospel is bigger. I wonder what stands out to you in this quotation. The mystery is that New Jerusalem doesn't start from scratch. Our efforts here to bring justice and beauty as resurrection people will be consummated and glorified. That is a mystery that I can't quite get my head round. But simply stated, everything you do here matters. God has a role for you in the city of Southampton. A large part of that is where he uses your vocation and your, your daily job. May he fill us up and send us out into this city of Southampton.